Okay. So I've got a lot to catch you guys up on. The shortest version that I can give you is that my life kind of became a whirlwind of one bad thing after another happening to our home and our animals and our electricity. And you can go see all that on my personal social media platform, which will be said once again at the end of this episode. But oh man, it was a doozy of a month. But all that is behind us now and we're moving forward. That's right. It's a new episode and it's just under a month shy of the last one being released. I want to apologize for taking so long to get the episode out. Like I said, there was a lot going on in my personal life and right now, You're Never Too Old is going through some major changes, which I'll talk about more at the end of the episode, so stick around to hear more about that. Now, before I talk about this week's guest for the episode, I want to thank a few people. Thank you to all those who have jumped on board with the Patreon page. It's been a big help in making sure that we stay afloat, and I'm really appreciative of your support. Also, I've been getting a few more reviews on iTunes, which of course warms my heart, and I thought I'd share one with you from Candor. Canned E-R. I'm sticking with Candor. That's just what I'm going to read it as. It says, how old are you? Doesn't matter, because you're never too old. Caleb does an amazing job with this podcast. You can tell he puts countless hours of effort into each and every episode. Each guest has been a blast to listen to so far, and Caleb is the perfect man to steer the ship. Want a Pokemon fix? You got it. Want an episode on artist inspiration? Blam! Do you want to bask in the nostalgia of cartoons from your childhood? Look no further. You won't find a better way to spend a little of your day. Five stars. My heart, it's filled with so much love. Be sure to take a moment of your day to submit a review, and I'll be sure to read it on a future episode. Now, today's guest is one of both talent and immeasurable wit, Alexis Lorige de la Plante. I made sure I knew how to say it in the beginning of this episode, so I wouldn't screw it up here. We talk about her work in comics, what future projects she has coming up, and I learn a lot about the history of comics in Canada. But... Let's get this puppy going. Roll the intro. Totally screwing it up. Will you uh, tell me how to pronounce your full name? Uh, Alexis Larige de la Plante. Alexis Larige de la Plante. Okay, cool. I definitely had a little bit of a southern twang when I said it out loud earlier, and I was like, "Yeah, no, I'm, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave that to her." It's it's a hard one. I don't think I think I've heard one person say it correctly on the first try, and they were French. So fair enough. <laughs> so. Um, my first question that I had for you today is while I was looking at all of your information and learning a little bit more about who you were, I saw that you graduated with a master's in history. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so very, very different from anything that I have heard from any other comic creators. So uh, tell me a little bit about that with your time being at the University of Victoria. Yeah. 
I really enjoyed doing my master's. I um I did my undergrad in Victoria. I I it was technically just a BA in history was my undergrad, but I had all but one credit to get a um what is it the thing where you have like a ma- a major and a minor or a double major oh, yeah. in creative writing as well. But I was like, there was one class of creative writing that I was like, oh, I'd have to stay an extra year to take this. And I don't really want to do that. So I just didn't. So I just got the the BA in history, even though technically I have almost all the training to have a BFA in creative writing as well. Right. And then after that, I applied to do my master's because I was like, why not? <laughs> Might as well. Um, might as well, because like and the thing about like Canada versus America, like I didn't go into any debt doing my undergrad. I actually kind of made money because I got a lot of scholarships. God, that's so, nice. Uh, <laughs> I'm so jealous right now. Um, so I did. Um, so I was like, I'll do my, I'll, tr- I'll try to do my master's because that won't drive me into the ground either. And I got a full scholarship to do my master's as well at UVic. So I was like, yeah, free ride. Yeah. I mean, if I, trust me, if I had it, I would have done it too. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was like really hard, obviously. I burnt myself out pretty hard doing it because I finished my entire master's in a year and a half. Oh, wow. Which is really not enough time to do a master's. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess apparently it is for you, huh? I did nothing else during that time. Though. It was like... <laughs> I was reading like 900 pages of like dense historical material a week just to keep up with my classes and to keep up with my thesis and stuff. So it was pretty wild. But the thing I actually wrote my master's on was comics. So basically what I was looking at for my my thesis or for me, it was simply it was a major research project because you could do a thesis or you could do a major research project. And basically the difference was... For the major research project, you wrote a slightly shorter kind of thesis, and then you took an extra class, which suited me better because I was like, I want to do more classes. I like, because I like classes. Right, yeah. <laughs> more, more than I like self-directed research. Right, yeah. More classes, less sitting there going, okay, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? How do I fluff this out more? <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Oh my god, how do I get to 70 pages, please? I just need a little more time. Yeah, I also, for my, because it's a major research project, there's more flexibility in what you can do, so I actually drew a comic. Oh, okay. <laughs> for my major research project, um, which all the faculty told me, they were like, we were so excited to see a comic come across, it was so much more fun to mark than another, like, 70-page really dry thesis, and I was like, yes! Right. Nailed it. <laughs> Well, and that leads so easily into my other question that I had about that is, so with your your studies that you had in history, did that play a big role into you going into creating more comics? Yeah, I've been creating comics since, like, as a hobby since I was, like, a kid for a really long time, like, since I was in high school, like, grade nine. <laughs> I, was, I was doing um, sort of OCTs original character tournaments on DeviantArt. Yeah, it's called art. And that was like a whole thing and I met a lot of friends there. So I was like always kind of planning to go into comics in one way or another. Uh, History definitely informed the way that I approached that and the way that I approached narrative and stuff. Mm -hmm. And also just like being able to do sort of background research on things or like being, trying to be more sensitive and more inclusive without being an asshole. And I mean, I, I still probably definitely fail at that because 
I am a, a white cis person, so it's well, a struggle. <laughs> I was gonna say after reading through um after reading through Autofaction, what I what I'm able to get through right now, it flowed really well and it didn't feel forced. And I was that's why I asked about the history because you have a lot of lore that seems to be built in there, but you're not explicitly saying, hey, this is exactly what happened. You know, you're you're kind of giving us bits and pieces as we go along. Yeah, autofiction was definitely something that I didn't want to front load a lot of information on. I was like, I kind of just want, the, like, I have an idea of the world, but it's not as important to the theme of the story, if that makes sense. Right. And the theme is very based on my like studies in history like it's a lot about like sort of i guess like enlightenment liberalism and the way that we build society to exclude people so that's kind of like the like the crux of autofaction sort of like world building is like this world is a world that's been desi designed to exclude and the way in which that is happening and the way in which that impacts the characters in the story is like really important and you can't sit with us. One of the things that I've noticed too with Autofaction, and I also saw on your website, is that you are a lover of all robotics. Oh yeah, I and, love robots. And so <laughs> I'm guessing that uh, the good old Autobots and Decepticons maybe had a little bit of influence. Oh yeah, for sure. I collect Transformers toys. Oh, that's I awesome. used to. I don't collect them anymore. I was. I kind of got to a point where I was like, all right, I have enough. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I have like a bunch of, uh, of them on my desk. I've got Devastator, I've got Astrotrain, Ratchet, Prowl, Sunstreaker, Jazz are all on my desk. And then I've also got Hero Man, Giant Robo, and Mega Man here as well. Nice. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> Only good boys. Yes. I was a, uh, a Funko addict for the longest time. I, that was my big collection. And I have a box of them that are completely unboxed that I have now uh, dedicated to donating to my mother's school so that they can have fun little toys to look at. Yeah. I was planning to sell some of my Transformers collection to a local collector collector shop just because there are some, like, some of them I really like and I want to keep and some of them I'm just like, eh. <laughs> Uh, but I like the Transformers toys specifically because they're very, like, good fidget toys. Like, mm -hmm. you could just, like, sit around and transform them. And once you kind of memorize all the steps, you can just sit with them in your hands and fiddle with them. I bring them when I go through airports because <laughs> they calm me down. The airports really stress me out. Yeah, fair enough. Airports alone are already stressful. You got to have something to kind of ground you. But yeah, I really like Transformers. I really like, I specifically really like G1. I liked the IDW Transformers run for a while, but it got, it got kind of just like too dark. It got not, well, it just got too hopeless, I guess. Because you right. can go pretty dark, but, and I'm like, cool, this is fun. I'm having a good time. But once things start getting like hopeless, I'm like, all right, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> So have you been uh, keeping up with any of the new shows that have been coming out? I know that they rebooted. Oh, gosh, I just lost it. What's the big one that's on Netflix that everyone loves? It's like five seasons deep now. Um, uh, oh, my gosh. Big Robot. Five people have to pilot it. Oh, uh, Voltron. Yes. Oh, God. I couldn't remember the name. Yeah. Uh, I didn't. I didn't know if you've kept up with Voltron or if you're a big fan of the kind of reboot that they've got going for it. Um, I really like the first, like three seasons of Voltron and then I kind of got 
they started doing like a bunch of like time travel multi-universe stuff and i was like i don't really know how i feel about this so i haven't really watched it for a bit I really like the first couple seasons, though. I was a little sad they kind of uh, retconned Voltron's very stupid backstory, which is that he was originally just a giant robot who was like a guy, and then he got cursed to be five lines. By right. Like, Voltron was originally just some dude who's like protecting the universe, and then somebody's like, you're too good at your job, Voltron, and cursed him to be five lions right yeah now you get to break up and uh get split across the universe as five big lions neat and i guess his like sentience is gone i don't know because <laughs> like I, from what i gather he didn't originally have a pilot when he was just a dude i don't know too much about voltron though because like for me like the very there's like a very fine distinction between um super robot and then like mecha and voltron is kind of in the middle but it's more of a mecha right which is the main distinction is like, is the robot being piloted and is the robot sentient? Fair enough. Yeah. So have you had the chance to watch, what is it, uh, Love, Death, and Robots? No, I was I was excited about it when it first came out. And then I heard a bunch of sort of reviews that were like, oh, it's very like graphic and very like, there's a lot of like trigger warning kind of stuff. And I was like, I don't really, nah. <laughs> I like, there's like a lot of like, um older really weird like have you ever heard of robot carnival oh no i haven't there's like a bunch of these really old japanese anthologies that are just about robots and i think those are a little bit more fun because they're a little bit less edgelordy right <laughs> uh, that's my my main beef like with what for me like a lot of my inspiration when it comes to robots tends to come from sort of japan mm -hmm. japanese Robots, because in the West, we're very kind of afraid of sentient robots. <laughs> I think, and, I mean, they're very possible. Maybe we're just afraid because it's already there. Who knows? Who knows? But we're also just like, we're very afraid of sentient robots. And we're very like, a kind of like, weird about transhumanism. Everybody's like, ah, oh, but are you really human anymore? And it's like, who cares? Right. <laughs> it's cool. Your cells are all dying all the time anyway. If you're 25 years old or older, you're the person you were when you were born doesn't exist anymore. Right. You're like, a totally new person. Other than like the eggs in your ovaries. I think that's like the only cells. So if you're a person with ovaries, your eggs continue to exist all your life. Right. <laughs> I think, uh, but that's not really an integral part of your being. Yeah, I think um, one you've done a really good job of showing that with yours, and I think that like games like Fallout Four kind of went down that same path of like the synths and you know what is human, you know what makes an actual person. Yeah, the Fallout Four synths were really good. I did like. I think that's like in terms of like Western media and mainstream media, that's probably one of the better examples. So I wanted to ask. And I'm going to have to ask you again, pronouncing the first comic that you worked on. Ophiuchus. So, yeah. So, working on Ophiuchus with uh, Natasha Petrovic. Yeah. What was the inspiration behind creating that comic? Uh, Ophiuchus is based on a dream that I had. Okay. <laughs> um, where it was just kind of like two robots in a weird skeleton thing that they dug up. We're like, we have to go to the end of the world. And they were being like chased in my dream originally. And like they were trying to go back home, but home was like destroyed. And there was like ghosts living there that were like angry. It was weird. It's a weird dream. 
but it was all kind of based generally on that. And then I kind of took it and I meshed it together with the sort of hero's journey. Mostly, not because like the hero's journey is like the best narrative structure. It's like a very good narrative structure and it's really good for when you just want to make something that's a certain length, like a movie length. Right. <laughs> so I kind of meshed it together with that, with that beat sheet, because I was like, with Ophiuchus, our kind of big goal was we wanted to make something that was between about 90 and 150 pages. And um, we wanted to have it be like, look, we can make a comic. Wow, we proved it to ourselves and to everyone. Hey, look what I can do. So with Ophiuchus, that was always sort of the plan. We were like, we're going to print this. We're going to make it a manageable project. We're going to make it look really nice. We're going to focus on the art. We're going to make the story concise. The big point of Ophiuchus was very much proving. Well, and it's really well done, too. It was, it stood against a lot of other comics that I've seen on the web as far as the style that you guys chose to put it in because it felt, it felt almost like I was watching a video game unfold. I just love that. With regard to it being like a video game, um, Hyperlight Drifter was a big inspiration for the art style. That's a big part of why it plays out that way. Well, and I've thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed reading that and keeping up with Auto Faction. Both have been a very good read as far as my like nighttime trying to wind down stuff that I've been checking out. <laughs> That's good. I always like I've always like worried that secretly nobody reads Auto Faction because I don't really. I don't know. I don't really push it as hard as we pushed Ophiuchus. Ophiuchus is being published by Image Comics, actually, in August, so that's really exciting. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. That's I'm really so fantastic. Excited. Yeah. It's available for pre-order. Wow. But I want it now! You were actually recommended to me by um, the creator of Kill Six Billion Demons mm -hmm. for, for Ophiuchus. And that's how I kind of found y'all stuff and then found your uh, personal work with Autofaction. So I wanted to know if there were any other webcomic artists or writers or creators out there that have inspired you or that you would recommend to people listening. Um, well, one of them, my friend Aria makes a comic called Kid Commander, which mm. is kind of like, uh, God, how do I describe it? It's like One Piece, but like weirder. Okay. <laughs> And the boat doesn't actually go in the ocean. It's like One Piece with like a bunch of like eldritch horror abominations. It's like it's like oh god, six hundred pages now. I don't oh, know. Wow. I really like I really like her dialogue and stuff. I think that's really fun. Um, who else do I read? There's obviously Ben Floyder and his um, the Sword Interval and Derelict are both really good. Natasha works as the colorist on the Sword Interval actually, and I've done a few chapters of it. I've done two segments oh no three segments i forgot there was another story that there's one that me and natasha worked on together for the comic and then there's two that i did two episodes that i did for the sword interval and then natasha also did another episode by herself okay so we've both worked on that and mostly the reason that we did it was <laughs> poor ben is always like so far behind and he's like i just need a break so we're like, all right. I'm always like, all right, I'll do I'll do an episode for you, Ben. Don't worry. <laughs> I can do this. So I just draw like six or seven pages and he takes a couple weeks off, which is nice. 
Yeah. I mean, and one of the things that I've really learned, especially stepping into the podcasting world and talking to people on here is that it's such a collaborative effort out there that you, you almost have to find people that you can work with now. I mean, you can certainly do it on your own, but it's so much nicer to have people that you can have that communal bond with. Yeah. And also like the networking is in, is really important. Like it's, very good to be able to throw your audience at somebody else and them to throw their audience back at you. Cause like you don't lose your audience when you redirect them somewhere. Right. You just, you just build it really because then everybody starts talking to each other and it's, it's like a much more, people always kind of frame like web comics as a really um, competitive, competitive or like comics in general is really competitive and it's kind of not like you can obviously play it in a really competitive way, but ultimately if you just, be nice and collaborative you're you're gonna get more out of it than you would otherwise like that's the whole premise of like hive works is like ah let's all pool our audience yeah i've only recently <laughs> stumbled across hive works and i didn't even know it was a thing and that's horrible of me to say but i think i found it through like a roundabout way off of imgur or imgur however you say it and somebody posted something which led to that, which then led to another comic. And then I found Hiveworks. Yeah, Hiveworks is like good. There's like a little period where it was kind of before sort of Webtoon and Tapas and stuff where it was like the end all be all of comics. It's like, if you're if you're a webcomic and you're not on Hiveworks, so it doesn't matter at all, which, which kind of sucks because there are lots of good comics that weren't on Hiveworks. Right now, getting into Hiveworks isn't super great, though, because they want to get into print publishing. And so whenever you sign a contract with them, they're like, we want all your your print publishing rights, too, because we might get into print publishing. It's like, no, you can't have my print publishing rights. <laughs> I'm so, sorry, bud. You can't. I'm not going to let you IP speculate. That's really bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, nobody wants that. No, but other than that, Hiveworks has been pretty good as far as I know. But yeah, comics is good. There's so many comics. I really, I do like Webtoons because it's like, it's like a big platform and there's like no bar to accessing it, which is nice. Well, and I, I constantly see more and more people getting added on to it. Yeah, the featured, they pay their artists really well in the featured segment. Like Ben, Ben is in their featured segment and he makes like a, he makes good money working for for webtoons especially like compared to like comics is like historically like a very very like exploitative industry like publishers just love to mine their artists and sort of take their ip and and sort of um never pay them right like yeah just taking it and kind of running with it and being like all right well this is ours now yeah, this is ours now. We're just gonna pretend you didn't exist, or like, hey, I'm gonna, we're gonna make you draw in our sort of exact Marvel comics or DC comics styles. But Marvel is specifically really bad about it, and then we're we're gonna make you do this many pages a week, and we're gonna pay you pretty low rates per page if you're like new in the company or whatever. And then we're gonna sell this at like a huge premium, and you're never gonna see any royalties. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why I love talking to webcomic artists because it seems like you have so much more of a grasp on what you're actually able to do because it is yours and it's mostly just uploading it to a platform for other people to see it, but it is yeah, yours at the end of the day. 
for sure and it's like a it's a whole different ball game like um for for us like obviously like it's our work for me and natasha but a, a lot of our projects we do want to pitch them to publishers so we do bear in mind like what is sort of like popular what is gonna sell well what is unique about what can we do that's not in the market what can we you know that kind of stuff but but like not so much that it actually really impacts the work so much as it's just like oh we probably shouldn't put too many swears in this comic if we want to like sell it to, right <laughs> to this publisher or whatever like um we're working on a new project called Knife Witch Bullet Wizard, and one of the characters in there I had originally written to just kind of say fuck all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we were we kind of realized, we we're like, oh, if we would have pitched this to, like, certain publishers, or, like, because it, it's kind of a weird comic in that, despite having a bunch of the F word, it kind of fits a more, like, teen demographic. So we were like, oh, we should actually maybe not put too many swears in here just because... If we actually wanted to pitch that to a publisher towards that demographic, we would have to take them all out. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. They'd got to make it T for teen, right? T for teen. But that's like a pretty small thing. It's just like, uh, let's try to minimize like big gore and like swearing. But like, that's not really in our wheelhouse anyway. We're not like, big gore people <laughs> right well and so i wanted to ask um as well the scene for comic creators and like artists and writers is that very big in victoria or are you working more kind of spread out across like nationally or globally recognized platforms um the scene in Victoria is actually pretty good. I keep forgetting I need to call a, lo a local comic book shop um, actually invited us to come do a signing. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, so we're going to do that. I have to call him and arrange a date, though, because Natasha is going to be coming here for Vancouver Comic Arts Festival in two weeks. Oh, nice. Yeah, so Victoria is like, Canada in particular actually has a really different publishing scene and a different comic scene than the United States does. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because the United States, you've got sort of like a lot of really big brand stuff. Like you've got Marvel, you've got DC, you've got all those big publishers. And this comic scene was destroyed by the American comic scene, basically because the here's the history of comics in Canada. So Superman and stuff was happening in the 1930s, 1940s. Superhero comics were taking off and that's sort of the launch of modern comics as we know it was during the Second World War. And during the Second World War, Canada had um, certain embargoes in place that prevented um, unnecessary purchases from the United States because we needed to save our American currency to buy weapons and ammunition supplies. So one of the things that people weren't allowed to buy or import from the United States was comics. So as a result, there's this 10-year period in which Canadian comics are operating sort of with no competition from the United States, which is great because the United States has way more money to invest in their comics they've got color press they've got way more artists they've got they can just flood the market immediately in canada we don't even have color press we can color our covers at this point but the inside of the comics is all black and white oh, so wow. there's like johnny canuck and nelvana of the northern lights are kind of the big comics that you see at this point and so as soon as that embargo is lifted uh the united states just starts flooding the canadian market with comics and the scene completely dies. 
there's no there's basically no local publishing in canada of comics until like there's a little bit of a revival in the 70s and then the main revival is actually now oh wow okay so canada though has had this law for a really long time uh called the massey commission which basically regulates the amount of quote-unquote canadian content so basically if you're like a radio person if you're like any kind of distributor of media if you're like making film there are certain quotas that you have to meet of canadian comment content it's like five percent so it's like if you're on the radio five percent of your airtime has to be dedicated to canadian artists uh if you're making a movie if you can like fill like a checkbox of like canadian things like was it filmed here is the director canadian how much of the staff is canadian? you know that kind of stuff right then you get then you get tax credits that's why a lot of things are filmed in vancouver because they're technically canadian productions and they get tax credits and there's all that kind of stuff but also there are no canadian publishers that are other than redistributors that are distributing american books there are very few Canadian publishers that are publishing Americans. Almost every are publishing like big name books. Almost all Canadian publishers are publishing sort of small indie Canadian stuff. Right. Because there's no point in trying to compete with the American market. So they kind of have their own little like unique market within Canada that's for like indie stuff, indie Canadian stuff. So comics falls into that like draw drawn and quarterly is kind of the big one that was like a big sort of like canadian niche market for a little while yeah and so that's kind of what the publishing scene in canada is like is almost this like it's like very obvious when you're in canada but like if you're in the states looking in you'll see a lot of american media being very popular here because it is but um if you're like as a creator or even as like a person going into your local comic book shop, you're always going to find this sort of like Canadiana section where it's not necessarily everything is like, oh, it's about, it's like very nationalist and like about Canada or whatever. But it's just like, here are our Canadian artists. They're here. You should buy their stuff. <laughs> buy what they have. <laughs> support Canadians. Support, support your Canadians. And a lot of people like that because it's, you know, it's people, people who like indie comics like that here. And that that net, that market is very well supported by retailers and stuff, especially in comic book shops. They're like, "Hey, here are our Canadians. Yeah, here well, are our locals." And I, I honestly like, I couldn't tell you a single local person for Arkansas. And that, as far as comics go, actually, no, I could tell you one local person as far as comics go, but he has gotten very big and is actually recognized globally now from what I've been told. But yeah, I can't, beyond him, I can't think of anybody else, which is so wild. So it's at this point that I recognize that I am a terrible Arkansan and I can absolutely name more people that have done comics. Timothy Lynn with Invasion Media, Chad Maupin, who just had the Death Ray print and illustration expo that he ran. I mean, there's a list of people, and I'm sorry if I didn't name you, but I know you're out there. Please don't hate me. But, um, yeah, it's it's really cool to hear that there is that kind of growing want for more indie con uh, content yeah it's been that way in canadian literary publishing for a really long time and comics is just kind of finally growing to match it especially because for a really long time obviously comics were hard to print like it's not hard to print books ultimately because you just it's words on paper it's black and white paper quality doesn't really need to be very high right um 
but with comics, obviously, you need color and ink and fancy ink and fancy paper and <laughs> that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, like, you, for floppies, you don't. There's also, like, you've got the issues with, like, Diamond Distributor being a monopoly and all that fun stuff. But, you know, it is it is what it is. Comics comics is very, like, shoehorned by its own distributing. I just have one more question for you, and it's the question that I always enjoy asking creators across the world now. As somebody, so you graduated with your master's in 2016, so you're three years out. Mm-hmm. You have a comic that's getting published by Image Comics, working on a new project. What advice would you give to people wanting to get into that industry or have just taken the first steps to creating their own content? So my big piece of advice is if you've got your giant 600 page magnum opus, don't start with that. Right. <laughs> um, start with um, start with like shorter comics outline your whole story, figure out how to fit it into like 90 to 100 pages and do that first. Is that because like you're probably going to quit your 600 page mega opus or anything like that? It's more because um, if you have like a shorter thing that you can finish and you can prove that you could finish something, you're going to you're gonna have something that you can print and sell if you want to print and sell it. You're going to have something you can show to publishers if you want to get hired or if you want to pitch your story to publishers. You're going to have... Just it's basically like a portfolio piece, and you're gonna have that to be like, "Hey, look what I did!" Right. And then sort of keep stick with like a do like two or three of those like shorter stories, and you're gonna the thing that a lot of people I think don't realize is like short stories are very important. But knowing how to write short stories is like critical to knowing how to write long form stories. If you can't write short stories, you can't write a novel. Right. So starting with those shorter stories is going to make your magnum opus better. It's going to make you better. And hopefully you'll be able to make some money before you get into your magnum opus. Which is a great addition to actually getting published or creating something. It's just that little yeah. bit of money that you can put towards it. Yeah, you need that income to keep yourself going. So if you have a, like a finished product that you can show to people and sell, that's going to keep you going longer than having look look i've got the first five chapters of my story right (laughs) it's like that's great you could maybe sell that as a volume one but it's gonna be easier to just be like here's my finished book well thank you again so much for coming onto the podcast today and letting us hear more about who you are and the work that you've done. And I can't wait to see the new project come out hopefully soon. Maybe. Yeah. And, um, Nightwish Bullet Wizard coming up fairly soon. We haven't picked a date or anything, but it's coming along. <laughs> well, I will be on the lookout for it for sure. All right. It was really nice. Sorry to you. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. So of course, All the thanks go out to everyone who's helped with the creation and continuation of the podcast as usual, especially to Alexis. But I really wanted to take this time at the end of the episode to talk about some of the major changes that are happening to You're Never Too Old as a brand and a podcast. Over the past month, I've been taking a course about preparing for freelance, and it's opened my eyes a lot to the possibility that I have as a creator to bring amazing content to all of you. But when I started looking for a way to actually financially support myself and connect even more with you as a community, I started struggling a little bit. That was 
until through random happenstance, I came to the idea of creating lessons and supplementary learning programs that could help students that are struggling to grasp core concepts by engaging them in nerd culture and creativity that doesn't feel like learning. So I've started working with some of the educators that I know and gathering ideas and inspiration from all across the internet to reestablish our brand as something bigger than a podcast. As of this previous week, your Never Too Old podcast can now be found under the umbrella of YNTO Productions. Google us, Bing us, find us any way that you need to, but if you're in the local area of Central Arkansas and your student is looking for a fun, creative way to engage in core concepts and learning, then YNTO is the group you're looking for. Now, obviously the podcast will still be in effect, and I'll continue to bring friends and professionals on to speak about nerd culture, but... I wanted to start gearing it towards education in anime, cartoons, comics, and video games, on top of the passion that people have for it. I've been lucky enough to have such talented and inspirational guests on the podcast so far, and I can only hope that we continue to grow as a community of nerds, educators, and innovators. So, moving forward, what would you like to see YNTO cover on upcoming episodes? Who should we reach out to? Who should we bring on? Also, be sure to check out the new website updates at yntoproductions.com. That's right, I bought the domain. Till next time, listeners. <laughs>